Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 68. Last week, when I ended, I was working my way through the places where the Israelites encamped while on their exodus journey. These stopping points are sometimes called stations. When I stopped, they were still in Egypt, having yet to cross the Red Sea. More specifically, the last place I covered was Pi-Ahiroth, which was said to be between Migdal and the sea. This week, I'm beginning with Migdal and working through the next several places found in the text. And with that, let's get started. I'm going to kick off this episode with the actual text from the beginning of the 14th chapter of Exodus, as it helps orient the path the recently released Israelites were blazing. Embedded in the text are also the first couple of places I'm covering this week. It reads, from the New Revised Standard Version, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Bel-Zephron. You shall camp opposite it, by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Migdal is the Hebrew word that translates to something elevated. Maybe a tower, an elevated stage, or a raised bed, like a riverbed. It can also mean a fortified land, like a walled city. So, something high or protected. A similar word would be used later in the Old Testament, referring to forts. Jeremiah would refer to the same place as this in Exodus, or at least a place with the same name, and his reference is believed by some to refer to an island in the Nile. Ezekiel would also refer to potentially the same place. A similar word in Egyptian is mekter, which is thought to mean a border fort. So, combine it all together, and it's a relatively safe assumption that it means a fortified place. So, their stopping point was between the fort and the sea. The sea is assumed to be the Red Sea, as this part of the narrative was quickly approaching. And that's it. Really nothing else in either the Egyptian or the Hebrew historic record. The text in the beginning of chapter 14 also references a place known as Baal-Zephon, which is a really curious reference. There's little doubt that the text refers to a place name, but the actual name, well, that has a different meaning. I've covered many times how various Canaanite deities were named Baal, and this one fits that pattern too. Baal-Zephon was the Canaanite storm god Baal, and he was called this longer name when he was present at Mount Zephon, of course. This mountain is modernly named Jabul el-Akra and is on the border of Turkey and Syria and really on the coast of the Mediterranean and well north of where the Israelites encamped. In Ugaritic text, Bel is called Hadad, which then makes you wonder why a place that is west of the Red Sea would bear this name in Exodus. Well, the Syrian mountain was apparently so important in the Levitine society that it also came to mean the word north. So in this case, 
at least in this part of Exodus, it may not have referred to a specific place, but a compass direction. If they had had compasses. Spoiler, they did not. But they still knew which way was north. The only part that makes this confusing is the actual usage in the text, where it reads, The front of Bel-Zephon, making it sound like an actual place, not just a direction. Then, there's the outside historic record. Russell Gmerkin, a 21st century author and Dead Sea Scrolls scholar, identified the location as the city of Arsinoa, which was on the coast at the Gulf of Suez. Also, a Ptolemaic-era geographical text lists four border fortresses, one of which was named Migdal and Bel-Zephon. So maybe it was one place with two names. Trying to pull this all together, it could have been located somewhere on a canal that ran from Pithom to or at Arsinoa. Herodotus, the 5th century BC Greek historian, said it was on the border between Egypt and Syria, more specifically near a place named Korun. This is a small mountain near the marshy Lake Bardoil. It's thought that at this location, the later Greeks worshipped Bel-Zephon. So, maybe a direction, maybe a fort, maybe a small mountain, but certainly west of the Red Sea, in what was Egypt. Moving along. Chapter 14 ends with the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, which of course will be the next place covered. The Red Sea is essentially a seawater inlet in the Northwest Indian Ocean. It separates the African continent from the Arabian Peninsula. On its north, it splits around the Sinai Peninsula, with the Gulf of Suez in the west and the Gulf of Aqaba in the east. Of course, today, in the Gulf of Suez, at least at the north end of it, is the Suez Canal, which connects the Red Sea to the Mediterranean and is one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. More on that in a minute. In its south, it narrows to the Bab el Mandid Strait, which connects it to the Indian Ocean proper. Underneath the sea is a geologic feature known as the Red Sea Rift, which is part of the larger Great Rift Valley, which is why the sea is unusually deep, with a maximum depth of close to 10,000 feet, or about 3,000 meters. Overall, the sea has a surface area about the size of the U.S. state of California and the country of Iraq, which really surprised me, as I never really thought of it as being that big. But that's why I try to put measurements like this in context. As for its name, there are essentially two theories. The first is based directly on the color. There are somewhat seasonal blooms of red bacteria whose name, at least my severe mispronunciation of it, I'll spare you. When this bacteria blooms in the Red Sea, the coloration can be so intense that it's visible from space, which of course also means it's visible to land dwellers on its coast and seafarers. These blooms don't overtake the whole body of water, though. They tend to group into colonies that can extend up to 250 nautical miles, or close to 5,000 kilometers. That's the exception, though. Typically, they're a few miles and can last a couple of months. And they're not just in the Red Sea. 
but also in the Baltic, Caribbean, Indian, Atlantic. You know what? I'll stop the list. They're worldwide. So that's one potential source for the name. The other is directional. In this one is that the name simply refers to the south. At the opposite end of the compass is the Black Sea, north of Turkey. This theory relies on a few regional languages that use colors to refer to directions, red for the south and black for the north. There's also the White Sea in far northern Europe and the Yellow Sea between Korea and China. Simple enough. Bolstering this theory is that the same Herodotus I mentioned earlier calls the body of water both the Red Sea and the Southern Sea. And the name is important when I get to my next topic, the Sea of Reeds. Of course, like most things known to different cultures, it has other names too. The Sea of Mecca, the Arabian Gulf, to name a couple. Backing up a bit, it's believed the ancient Egyptians, as early as 2500 BC, attempted to sail down the sea in the direction of the Kingdom of Punt. The fact that this theory is essentially a theory lends insight into the believed success of this exploration. They wouldn't give up, though, as another exploratory trip is thought to have occurred about another 1,000 years later. This would have been in the general time as the dating of the Exodus. Another eight centuries later, so in the 6th century BC, Darius the Great of Persia sent reconnaissance missions to the Red Sea, and in doing so, his sailors were able to map some of the coastline, as well as chart hazards such as shallows, rocks, and currents. To this day, the winds and currents are considered some of the trickiest to navigate in the world. About the same time, and like I covered in Egyptian history, the Egyptians would dig a canal between the Nile and the northern end of the Red Sea near Suez. Later, in the 4th century BC, Alexander the Great sent a naval expedition through the Red Sea to the Indian Ocean. It's thought that Hippilus, a 1st century BC merchant, first discovered the direct route from the Red Sea to India. The sea was preferred by the Romans over a land route to India. And, from this trade with India, the Romans were able to import goods from as far away as China. The sea would continue to serve in this role, as a route to India and the trade that went along with it, through about the 3rd century AD, when the Aksumite Empire established itself on both sides of the Bab al-Mandab Strait. But, the waterway was such a vital link to Middle and East Asia, and the mere empire couldn't stop that trade would pick up again in the Middle Ages with what became known as the Spice Trade Route, again between Europe, India, and China. Then, in 1798, Napoleon invaded and seized Egypt, and in doing so controlled the Red Sea. He then envisioned a canal that ran from the Mediterranean in the north to the Gulf of Suez in the south. The same dream the pharaohs had had so many millennia before. His plan was not to come to fruition just yet, though, as other international events got his attention. And his surveyors miscalculated that the sea level of the Red Sea was 33 feet or 10 meters higher than that of the Mediterranean. 
They thought, should they complete a canal, it could lead to a potential flooding of the southern European coast. Now, before you scoff too much, you do need to know that sea level is not as constant as you think. For example, the sea level of the Pacific on the west coast of the U.S. is an inch or so higher than that of the Atlantic on the east coast. But an inch is far different from 33 feet. A canal would be completed less than 100 years later, officially opening in 1869. And it has been fought over, well at least it has been the location of many battles and skirmishes since. Due to an Egyptian blockade, it was even closed between 1967 and 1975 after the Six-Day War between the Allied Arab States and Israel. Back to the sea. The Red Sea is essentially a sea between deserts, and since the area around it is so arid, it loses much of its surface water to evaporation. Adding to this, there is little rain falling into it few rivers that empty into it and is constricted on its ends by straits or canals. All of these factors causing it to be surprisingly salty. Overall, it averages about 40% salinity, which is about 5% higher than the overall ocean average. This makes it one of the saltiest, non-isolated bodies of water in the world. Despite the high salinity, there are coral reefs in the shallower portions of the sea, all around it, in Egypt, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Sudan. The warm water, with a year-round average of 72 Fahrenheit or 22 Celsius, certainly helps. And one more oceanographic fact that plays into the Exodus story. Comparatively, the sea has mild tides, in the north, the range is about 2 feet or 60 centimeters from high to low. In the south, it is about 3 feet or 90 centimeters. And I found this next bit a bit surprising. In its central region, it's almost tideless. Now for the usual caveat. Actually, I'll skip it. You know what it is. Geologists posit that the Red Sea formed when the Arabian Peninsula diverged from the Horn of Africa via the fissure known as the Red Sea Rift. They also report that the sea is still widening to the point that in 2005 alone, its width grew by about 25 feet or 8 meters in only three weeks following a period of increased tectonic activity. The rift also caused several now-dormant volcanic islands in the sea. Well, mostly dormant. In 2007, a volcano on the Jabal Atir Island in the Baba al-Mandib Strait erupted violently. Then, between 2011 and 2013, two new islands formed near the Zubair Archipelago. These are near Yemen and claimed by that country. And that's the Red Sea. And now for something I've hinted at and mentioned a few times. We think of Moses parting the waters of the Red Sea, but the actual body of water is a bit more turbid. The association of the Red Sea with the Exodus 14 passage primarily comes to us, or at least began, with the Septuagint. This is the earliest known translation of the Old Testament 
from the original Hebrew into Greek and occurred between the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC. In that translation, the Hebrew phrase Yom Suaf is explicitly translated to the Koine Greek phrase Ayartara Talasa, literally the Red Sea. But the Hebrew phrase doesn't mean that exactly. It literally translates to the Sea of Reeds. It could also be the Sea of Seaweed. And it's not just found in Exodus, but also in Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, 1 Kings, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Psalms, essentially throughout the Old Testament. Most of these are references to the crossing by the Israelites, but a few refer to the boundaries of the land they were destined to occupy. Of course, it's natural to assume that the Sea of Reeds is the same as the Red Sea. After all, that's what the Hebrew to Greek translators did. But if it's not, then where else could the waters have parted? We get a clue in 1 Kings chapter 9, where we read that King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Eloth on the shores of the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, in the land of Edom. Eloth could be Elath, which is on the Red Sea at the Gulf of Aqaba. Sometimes you will see the Gulf of Aqaba called the Gulf of Elat. Edom was a kingdom in the southern Levant and at times included Eloth, so maybe the northern tip of the Red Sea. It may have also referred to a now dry lake close to the Red Sea, a lake bed that is now part of the Suez Canal. Or it could be the Lake of Tanis, which used to be a coastal lagoon fed by a branch of the Nile. Or the Sapat al Bardawil, a large lagoon on the north coast of the Sinai Peninsula. And those are the proposed locations of the Sea of Reeds, if it's a truly different place from the Red Sea. For brevity, I'll just call it the Red Sea. But now you know the original Hebrew may have meant a different place. May have. After the crossing of the Israelites and the drowning of the Egyptian army, Moses erupts in a song as found in Exodus chapter 15. In his song, he references several places to come, namely Philistia, Edom, Moab, and Canaan, saving those for later. After he finishes, his sister Miriam sings. Then we're told that Moses led the people away from the Red Sea into the wilderness of Shur. It's believed that Shur was located along the Wadi Tumalat. This is an agricultural strip of land east of the Nile Delta. If there, it would have been along the ancient highway route between Egypt and Canaan, the one that ran across the Sinai Peninsula. We've seen it previously referenced in Genesis 16, where Hagar was found after running away from Sarah. In 1 Samuel 15, King Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. But even with these couple of references, we don't really know where it is. Easton's Bible Dictionary, a 19th century English reference book, wrote that Shur is, quoting, a part, probably, of the Arabian Desert on the northeastern border of Egypt, giving its name to a wilderness extending from Egypt towards Philistia. 
The name was probably given to it from the wall which the Egyptians built to defend their frontier on the northeast from the desert tribes. This wall or line of fortifications extended from Pelusium to Heliopolis, end quote. So it's probably safe to think of it as the territory beyond the Egyptian boundary wall, and Pelusium was a city in the far eastern Nile Delta. Heliopolis is one of the oldest cities in Egypt, positioned in what is today North Cairo, and essentially where the Nile begins to split to form its delta. And that's it for sure. After three days of wandering in Shur, they had found no water. Then they arrived at Mara, which had water, but unfortunately it wasn't potable, as they found it to be bitter. So bitter that the word Mara became synonymous with bitterness. Mara was the next station of the Exodus after Pi Hieroth. The location of Mara is unknown, but about 47 miles or 76 kilometers southeast of the Gulf of Suez on the Sinai Peninsula is a salty spring known as the An Harara. But that's a bit out of the way. More along the proposed route, about 10 miles or 16 kilometers southeast of the Gulf, is a salty fountain known as the An Naba. Another possible location is what's known as the Small Bitter Lake, about 20 miles north of the Gulf. There were actually two lakes there, the Small and the Great Bitter Lake. But the construction of the Suez Canal went through both, so now they're all part of the canal. No locks or other works separating them from each other or the oceans. And with that interconnectivity, it's impossible to know how bitter they actually were. But given the location, and that they had no outlet to the sea, we can be certain that the water wasn't potable, so maybe this was them. After Murrah, the Israelites came to Elim, their next station. According to both Exodus and Numbers chapter 33, this place had 12 wells and 70 date palm trees. It's generally believed that Elim is the same as the Wadi Gorendo, an oasis about 62 miles or 100 kilometers southeast of the Gulf of Suez. As an oasis, it was known to many of the peoples that passed through the area. According to the Bedouins, the area was prone to flash flooding when the few storms that rolled through rolled through. And that can't surprise you, as an oasis and date palms do need a source of fresh water. Some have proposed that Elam could have been the Wadi Hammamat, which was located near the modern city of Al-Ser, Egypt. But this is a long way from the Sinai and on the wrong side of the Red Sea. It's on the way to Cush, not Canaan. The Israelites would end up encamping at Elam for an unspecified period, and then set out for the wilderness of Sin. And despite Sin being spelled exactly the same, at least in English, don't think it translates to going against God's commandments. Instead, in this usage, Sin likely translates to the moon, probably referring to the Semitic moon deity, Sin. Given that it's a wilderness, and like so many of the other places I've covered recently, 
The exact location of Sin is unknown. Many identify it with the narrow plain of El Marca. This strip of land lies along the eastern shore of the Red Sea for several miles toward the extreme southern tip of the roughly triangular Sinai Peninsula. The tip of the peninsula is known modernly as Ras Muhammad. And that's it for this wilderness, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. I did skip over date palms and how oases work, which are both worthy of covering. Join me next week when I'll pick up with these two things and continue working through Exodus. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.